0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. All right. Good morning to you at home. Uh, Grateful to be able to open up God's word and to study it. Uh, We heard there at the end that Jesus' words never pass away. How many words pass away that we think will remain forever? Uh, So let us be ordered by these words. Let's pray again briefly. God, we do pray that we would be ordered by the words of Christ that never pass away. Help us to be ordered by them. Help us to stay awake. Watch ourselves in light of what is coming. Amen. The end is near. We can picture the scene, can't we? Guy standing on the National Mall. Big cardboard sign, thin piece of wood attached to it, words written in big black letters, the end is near. He's got his bullhorn and he's screaming out to the people, the end is near. And as people walk by him, maybe as you walk by him, you laugh at him, mock him, Maybe you feel sorry for him as a kind of relic from the past. Someone that just doesn't get it. But I wonder how many people will actually listen to him. How many people will actually slow down and take a moment to consider this thought? What if he's right? What if there really is an end to the things that we know it as we know it and what What if it's near? What will you do? What will you say that is when the Son of Man comes, as he says he will, to establish his rule completely on the earth? Will you be ready? I mean, this all is just sort of some science fiction novel. This sort of comes across. Maybe even you, beloved, think you're a little embarrassed by these kinds of teachings. But we see, friends, that Very clearly, the Lord Jesus did teach that there would be an end. He did teach that it was near. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we ready? Or are you asleep? Let's dive in and see. It's Tuesday of what is often called Holy Week. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem with a great deal of fanfare a couple days ago. His ministry has captivated the throngs. He's driven out those den of robbers. You remember that? He drove out those den of robbers a couple days ago in the temple. He stayed there. He's teaching daily, we see. He knows that his death is near. It's Tuesday. And Friday is coming. He knows it. We saw last week that he established his authority. He made that very clear. That he has all authority. He is David's Lord. We remember that. And he remember he condemned the glory-seeking religious people. Remember that? He looks up, though, amidst all of this, having done this. He looks up amidst this. And there he sees more empty, pretentious religion. He just condemned it a moment ago by talking about these guys with long robes that love greetings in the marketplaces, that listen, that devour widows' houses. then Then this, he looks up and there he sees wealthy man after wealthy man in the temple going and putting their abundant offerings into the box in the temple. And right behind them is a poor widowed woman waiting her turn. She has no husband, very little money. She's vulnerable in the world. And she walks up to that same offering box and puts in two small copper coins. Tink. Tink. The equivalent of pocket change. She turns and walks away. Unseen by the world, but not unseen by its maker. And from a distance, Jesus sees all of this happen. These wealthy people coming and going and putting in their big offerings. and This poor woman. And in my imagination, he sees uh, the poor widowed woman put those two little copper coins in there. And he smiles and says, that poor widow gave more than all of those wealthy men. And We might wonder, well, how's that? And Jesus would answer, well, because she gave out of her poverty. Not like those rich dudes out of their leftovers. Her giving, in other words, was so severe that it was sacrificial. It cost her something. The richest giving wasn't sacrificial. It was little more than a God tax to them. That maybe they trusted would kind of earn them a place in heaven. So in that way, their wealthy giving was little more than an investment strategy. She gave more because her giving revealed where her trust really lies. Friends, the kingdom of heaven doesn't need the trappings of the earth. And those that trust the king and are looking for the kingdom, they are willing to give all and be found wanting in this world so that they might be found in him. They give all so that they might know what abundance, what eternal life really is. Not what man has made it out to be. Poor widow woman got that wonder how much of us in our world get that. Well, this kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of earth theme continues. As Jesus overhears someone gawk at the temple. That look at this big, beautiful temple. And they say, look at its big, noble stones. Look at how tall it is. Look at how intimidating it is. Be amazed at this majestic temple. I can remember standing in the middle of downtown New York City and standing up and looking up at those incredibly tall skyscrapers and saying, wow, so big, so beautiful, so intimidating. Jesus comes alongside of the guy that does this and says casually, it's all coming down. This big, beautiful, noble building will be little more than a trash heap in the days ahead. Once again, Jesus means to help us see through the vain glory of the world. And into the power and the lasting beauty of his kingdom, of his temple, of his words that never passed. In this world, friends, the rich and their vaunted million-dollar gifts are in just that. They are vaunted. But in Jesus' kingdom, a poor widow woman is far more to him. In this world, people gawk at the size and beauty of man-made buildings. But in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus sees right through their flimsy foundations and onto a kingdom that can never fade. And of course, amidst that motion, that call that what this temple is going to come down, what's the obvious question? Well, when's that going to happen? When will these things be? When will the temple come down? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? That's what the question comes in response to Jesus saying that about the temple. And then after that, I count almost 30 times the word will is used. Indicating that the rest of the chapter are all things that will happen. Things in the future. Indicating all that Jesus is about to give us is things that are going to happen in the future. And here we find in this passage that Jesus gives us six signs to be on the lookout for. Here's the first. Verse 8. False teachers. False saviors. See that in verse 8. How do you know the end is drawing near? Well, there will be many, underline that word, many people that claim to be Christ, saviors, messiahs. Meaning there's going to be all kinds of people that are going to come along and say, follow me, I'm going to lead you to safe places. And Jesus says, don't go after them. Don't follow them. Steer clear of false teachers, That will lead you to a false end. And warning us to not go after false teachers, friends. That means that Jesus assumes two things. That we need to understand and we need to assume too. The first one is that if there are false teachers. That means that there is a standard of truth. That we should know and should follow. In other words, the truth can be known. And we can and should follow that truth by the grace of God. Friends, we live in a postmodern society that has come to doubt or question that truth can be known. We have a great deal of confidence in our ability to not know anything amidst the information age. And like all civilizations before us, and I would argue still most of the world today, Jesus assumes that we can know the truth, and therefore we should follow that truth and not follow lies. Beloved, find good pastors. Find good pastors that see the world like that poor widow woman and not like the rich. Not like poor. Not like that rich in the worldly wisdom. Find pastors that will not conform to earthly patterns. But the heavenly pattern that Christ has made clear to us. And they say what he says. And they don't apologize for it. And they love you enough to call you to that. And when they get it wrong, you don't follow them. But when they get it right, you do. Don't go after false teachers. Follow the true ones. You can know the truth. This world will tell you you can't. But you can. Jesus says you can. You can. Follow the ones that will lead you to truth. Don't follow the false teachers. But the second thing that Jesus assumes is that there will be a delay between his going and his coming. If there are going to be many Christs claiming a false salvation, that assumes there will be many days for those false Christs to pop up. And he's going to mention that in just a moment. And so how do we know that the end is drawing near? Well, many people will claim to be a Messiah that will lead people away from his salvation. Jesus says, do not follow them. Follow the true Christ and those that lead you to that one. Second sign of the end. Jesus says there will be wars and tumults. What's a tumult? Tumult is a riot. Rebellions. This is the sign we see in verses 9 and 10. So, beloved, you're going to hear about nations, he says, fighting against nations. You're going to hear about Russia fighting against the Ukraine. You're going to hear about North Korea warring against South Korea. Your phone will give you notifications of riots in Hong Kong, in the Congo, in Venezuela, and in South Asia. You will hear on the news about riots in Portland, Los Angeles. And in Washington, D.C. That's what Jesus is saying. And what is it we do when we hear about these wars and these tumults, these riots? What do we do? Look at verse 9. Jesus gives a command to us. Do not be terrified. For, why, Jesus? Why should we not be terrified? For these things must first take place. But... The end will not, 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 not circle that the end will not be at once. Don't be worried. Don't be terrified. Don't worry about these kinds of things when they come up because all this stuff has to happen, but it's not all going to come to an end at one moment. There's going to be a delay. Don't be terrified when you hear about this stuff. It's understandable to be clear. It's understandable to be concerned. It's different though to be terrified because that would indicate that you don't trust the King of Kings that has his Lordship over all. Beloved, the big news conglomerates, they make a living on getting you and I terrified. They want you and I to get caught up in the frenzy of these wars and riots and stay tuned to their channel. And our Lord who has all authority looks at us through those screens and says, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified. I'm on the throne. The world is running the course that I have laid out for it. Don't be terrified. I've got this. I'm in control. Everything is happening just as I said it would. Nation is rising against nation. Kingdom, yes, is rising against kingdom. And the reason why is to expose the futile foundations of this world. To expose that to set your hope on them is futile because it's so flimsy. I've got this. I've told you it was going to happen. Don't trust that world. Trust me. Don't be terrified. I've got this. The end is not going to be at once. All these things are going to kind of roll out. And as we have seen, beloved, time and again, through the book of Luke, we have seen that Jesus explicitly teaches a delay between his going and his coming. Remember the thief coming in the night. Remember that from months ago, all these other times. The end is not all it wants. There will be a period that will be, quite frankly, full of all kinds of difficult things. He's told us. False teachers, wars, riots. And thirdly, verse 11, natural disasters. How do we know the end is drawing near? A whole bunch of false messiahs are going to pop up. Wars, riots, breaking out. And when natural disasters are busting loose, we find that those are coming. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences. What's a pestilence? Pestilence is a plague. What's a plague? COVID. Nathan, are you saying that the end's about to come? I have no idea. If I were to say yes, that would directly go against what Jesus said to not do and not follow me. You should not follow me. Remember, Jesus didn't even know the exact point at which the end was going to come. I'm just reporting the news here, friends. Telling you what Jesus said. We, you will have natural disasters breaking out all over the place. Notice that he says there, it's not just in one place. It's in various places. And these natural disasters, beloved, these are birth pangs. Bringing in the end. The good end. The restoration of all things. The world, as we see these natural disasters, the world is hemorrhaging. Romans 8 says that it's longing. This nature is longing amidst these uh, natural disasters. It's longing for the revealing of the resurrection of mankind. The true and lasting end. It is literally creation. Tsunamis. Tornadoes. Hurricanes. Famines on the horn of Africa. Ebola in West Africa. Malaria. Tuberculosis. COVID. All these things is the world talking. It's groaning. It wants the end. Jesus said it was going to be that way. Everyone on planet earth. Have you noticed that everyone on planet earth. No one has to teach them. That all of these terrible things, these natural disasters, they all instinctively say, this isn't right. Shouldn't be this way. World shouldn't be doing this. Have you ever noticed nobody had to teach people that? Why is that? Why is it people know that wars and hurricanes are not right? Why is it we all want peace? We all want harmony amongst the nations and amongst nature. Why? Why? Where does that come from? Why is that so universal? We've got to have an answer for that. Why does everybody know that COVID is not right? Not the way the world is supposed to be. Well, friend, the answer is very simple. It's because God created us in his image. Created us with a capacity to know something about him. To know that he is a God of peace. That he is a God of life. That he is a God of love. And that he made this world very good. And something went very wrong. Reality is, friends, the thing that went wrong is we have rejected him. Every one of us. I have. You have. We have rejected him and we have chosen to go our own way. God has given us over to our ways and to our world. And this world, these wars and natural disasters, this is what we have as a result. But the reality is even amidst that, that longing for a better world is still there because the image of God is still there in us. It's haunting us. It's calling us back to the garden. So amidst the chaos, beloved, do not be terrified. We will have that garden again. Jesus is bringing about as we hold fast to him and trust him. Jesus told us it would be less wet like this. He, he's ruling. The world is running the course. He has laid out for it. We know the end of the story, don't we? We got to stay awake amidst it. We're going to be tempted to fall asleep. That's where Jesus' little sermon is going to come to an end. Well, as if all of this wasn't enough, there's more. More signals to pay attention to. And beloved, this might be the hardest one for us. Fourth sign. Christian persecution. That's verses 12 to 19. It's a tough read, isn't it? Christians reading those verses. They're going to lay hands on us. They're going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They did the same thing to Jesus. He'll do the same thing to us. You'll be delivered up by even parents, by brothers and sisters by aunts and uncles, by grandparents, by friends, by college roommates, by childhood friends. And some of those that get turned over, they will be put to death because of their love for Christ. And friends, we saw this, didn't we? In the book of Acts, Luke's second volume, all of these things happen. Verse 17, you will be hated By all, you'll be hated by all, hated by all for my name's sake. Beloved, Christians have never fit into the world, never. We've been living in this dream world in America for the last 200 years that has not accord with the rest of Christian history. Christians have never fit into the world. Our book says we are aliens, we are sojourners. This is not home. And so as our nation increasingly secularizes and more and more confessing Christians, pastors, and churches, they're trying to find a way, though, to fit in. By either outright denying clearly revealed truths and capitulating to culture or by churches just choosing to never even talk about those controversial things at all. Or as is most common by Christians by trying to saddle or straddle the fence by saying, well, this is my truth and then you can have your truth. Friends, all of these are attempts to avoid the ministry that Christ calls us to suffer for his name's sake. Listen, I got no glory complex, right? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted. I'm tempted to capitulate time and again. But Jesus promised us that we would suffer for him. He promised us that. He was clear about that from the beginning. Don't lose sight of the fact that our symbol is a cross. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors of the heavenly country. We cannot design so-called Christian lifestyles that seek to fit in here and yet still be at home with him there. Can't do that. It's not an option. Jesus means to use persecution as a way of testifying to the world that Christ is king, that he is Lord, not Caesar, not Nathan, not you, not me. And when that persecution comes, look at how Jesus describes it. Look at verse 13. Suffering for the sake of Christ is an opportunity. (laughs) I sometimes think about this one. Joey will give critiques of my sermon and he'll say, some opportunities. Just tell me what it is. But that's how he's using Jesus' words, right? Persecutions are opportunities, he says, to bear witness to Christ. Most of us would like to pass on that opportunity, wouldn't we? But we can't. Not if we want to align ourselves with the kingdom of heaven. Christian, do you pray for opportunities to bear witness to Christ? Is that part of your common prayer life? Do you pray for opportunities to bear witness to the person, the work, and the worth of Jesus? Do you? Is that something you desire? Do you pray for them and then do you look for them? And then when you see them, do you then seize upon those opportunities? You got to do that. We got to do that. And some of you are going, huh, but Nathan, I get worried. I don't know what I'm going to say. Well, I got good news for you. Take a look at what comes next in verse 14. This is a command of Jesus. Settle it. Settle it. Therefore, in your minds to not <laughs> meditate beforehand on how to answer. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? So many times I've heard this asked before, like, what would you do if I'm not going to meditate on that? The only thing I'm going to meditate on is I'm going to meditate on Jesus and I'm going to trust. Look what comes next in verse 15. Circle that first word in verse 15. Don't, he says, Jesus, don't, don't set, don't meditate in your mind beforehand how you're going to answer when persecution comes. Jesus says, don't do that. But look at verse 15, because I circle that word. I, I. Jesus himself will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Hallelujah. He personally says, I will speak through you. You don't need to think about this. You guys remember all the stories we saw last week? Remember the Pharisees, Sadducees coming at him? Remember how all of them would kind of push him into a corner and he would say things. Remember what they all would end up saying. They were left in silence, marveling at Him. So it will be for you when you just endeavor. I'm not going to think about what I'm going to say beforehand. I'm just going to meditate on Jesus, and He's going to tell me what to say and do. And so, if you mean to have opportunities, beloved, to testify, and we have to about the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the grace of Christ, and that thought of those opportunities, it brings you to terror. Jesus says, "Don't be terrified." About all the different things going on. And don't be worried about what you're going to say in the midst of persecution. You need not. Not only do you need not. He commands you to not meditate what you're going to say beforehand. He's going to supply you with words in the moment. Your trust, in other words, is not in yourself. It's in him. People will sometimes say, Nathan, how do you stand up? Andy was saying that she had to read the text. I don't know how you stand up there every week and talk to these people. You know, don't you get nervous? No, because I trust this. I don't trust this. Trust him. He's going to give me the words to say. Because I'm going to say what he says. You do the same thing. Don't worry about what you will say. In the midst of persecution. Settling in your mind. That you will testify to him. And that you will not rehearse what you might say. But you trust him. That he will say what you need. What he needs you to say. And listen. Your endurance. The text says. Your endurance in those moments. To testify to him. Will reveal. That you have life you will not rehearse what you might say but you trust him but he will say what you need. listen <laughs> even if they take your life your even if they kill you you can rest easy knowing that not a hair on your head will perish For me to live as Christ and dies gain. We say that to a world, the worst they can do is kill us. And yet we go on and the message moves through our blood. God will not let a hair in your head perish. Even though you die, yet you shall live. God will carry you on through to the resurrection, beloved. And just as the father preserved the life of the son. So will he carry you through persecution and into the promised land. And know, beloved, that as he does, he also will administer justice to those that lay hands on his beloved. That's what we see next. Fifth sign. He will administer justice. They won't get away with it. In other words, fifth sign is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Verse 20 to 24. I'm just walking right on through Fifth sign, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then, you know, it's desolation has come near. It's important. Circle that word. It's what's the it's it's Jerusalem. So he's now he's moved to kind of talking broadly to very specifically about Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then, you know, it's desolation has come near. Matthew and. Mark, they call this event that he's talking about here, the abomination of desolation. I had to study Ecclesiastes this week and the abomination. Pray for your brother. It is a fulfillment, this abomination of desolation that Jesus is referencing here, this destruction of Jerusalem. It's a fulfillment of God's promises in the past, countless ones, all going all the way back to Deuteronomy 28. And there's numerous times in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Daniel where the Lord says this is going to happen. So this is a fulfillment of God's promises in the past. But also remember, this is also a fulfillment of what Jesus just said about the destruction of the temple. Remember that just a moment ago. Jerusalem would be surrounded and it will fall by the edge of the sword, he says. And what he, what he says next is important. And the Jews would be led captive among all Gentiles. That word there is ethne, ethnic, you hear it in there, it's nations. And the Jews would be led captive among all nations, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, by the nations. Jerusalem's going to come in. It's going to get sacked. It's going to be sacked by the nations. Temple will be destroyed. And beloved, all of this happens exactly as Jesus said 37 years later in the year 70 AD when the Romans came and sacked the city and destroyed the temple. Exactly like he said it would. They surrounded the city. They laid siege to it just like Jesus said they would. They attacked it. They destroyed it. They destroyed that temple. It came down just as Jesus said it would. And all of this, according to Jesus, in verse 22, are the days of vengeance to fulfill what was written. Right? If CNN was reporting, they would just be talking about the Romans. But we as Christians know back then, had we been standing there, God's behind us. And the reason why this day of vengeance was coming to Jerusalem in particular was because in the name of God. The Jews had committed spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery for decades, for centuries. And God had been gracious to them for century after century, sending them prophets, telling them to turn around. And they kept turning those prophets around, killing them even. Remember, this is what Jesus weeped over just a couple days ago. The Israelites in general, the people in Jerusalem, they provoked. God was slow to anger. They provoked his anger and justice was then administered to Jerusalem. And God did just as he said he would. From Deuteronomy 28 all the way down. And what's interesting is, is not only did God administer justice to the unbelieving Jews. Because of this prophecy, Jesus saved those that believed in his word. This is documented by numerous ancient historical accounts. They all agree. Every unbelieved Christian and non-Christian. They all, Eusebius, all these guys, they all agree that because of the words of Christ, because of this prophetic warning, Christians disproportionately fled the city upon the Romans coming up. And they fled the city and they were saved from the attack. Many of them went to a nearby city called Pella. Why? Because they believed Jesus. So they followed his words. And that little moment right there. Is a preview of all that comes. Christians save from the judgment. Those that don't trust him. Not saved. And so now. Just as Jesus drove out the den of robbers. From the temple. In order to establish it. Remember this. As a house of prayer for all nations. Remember he was beginning that work. So it is beloved to this day. That temple mount is Still. Held by the Gentiles to this day. Yes, the Jews are there. But of course, you all know, many of you know that that little plot of land, that temple land is one of the most contentious little pot of lands in the world. And when did that begin? It all began in 70 A.D. And that moment, that reality of the nations having claim in Jerusalem. Jesus says in verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles, the nations are fulfilled. That's going to happen until this age, this generation is fulfilled. We are in an age now. There's been a transition: death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Now we see the uh, we see exactly what Paul writes in Romans 11:25 when he says, "I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers: a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the nations has come in." Same thing that Jesus said, we're in this age, this of the nations coming to Jesus, to his lordship. This is the stage. This is the generation we find ourselves in, in this hour. God is bringing the fullness of the nations in and with alongside of those believing Jews. And there will be a time, as it says there, that that period, that this generation, this age is fulfilled. And the fullness of God's people will then be there. They're put together under the lordship of Christ. Not one single person will be lost. God will get them all. All of his, will, he will get. And that will then usher in the final sign. Six sign, cosmic distress. We're in this age looking for this final sign of cosmic distress. That's verse 25 to 28. Verse 25 says that there will be all kinds of signs in sun, moon, and stars. And on the earth, there will be distress of nations due to a perplexity about some stuff going on in the sea. Text says there that people will faint with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. This final sign seems to indicate some kind of heightened awareness of humanity. That recognizes things are going from bad to worse. It seems to indicate that humanity recognizes things are getting worse and worse and worse. And there is some general consensus amongst humanity that something big on the earth is going to happen. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching. And that leads to that fear, that anxiety, that despondency. But remember, those of us in Christ, we've already been told about this stuff, remember? Just like those ancient Christians were told to flee Jerusalem and were saved. Remember, Jesus told us to not be terrified as this cosmic stress comes on. All of this was running according to the plan of King of Kings. Our confidence in Christ, guys, it quiets our souls while those that don't have the peace of Christ are understandably disquieted. They have no hope. They've put all their hope here. And at some point amidst this sixth sign, this cosmic distress, we, we can't be sure when, at what point, what stage, how long it is, but at some point amidst this sixth sign, verse 27 says the final chapter comes. The end draws to a close. It's come. It's near. They, that's the earth. Look back up at verse 25. We're not talking about Jerusalem anymore. They will see the son of man coming. He's not going. They will see the man, Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, you remember the angel said that after he ascended and he ascended up through the clouds, you remember the angel said, as he has left, so he will come. Same thing Jesus is saying. And so, in other words, what... Jesus understands it when he's teaching this stuff on Tuesday. He knows Friday's coming. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to be dis- he's going to be dismantled, destroyed, mocked, crucified. He understands that in some sense he's going to go out in shame, but he's going to come back in glory. He will return with power and glory. Now he does this through the death belt and the resurrection and the ascension. But they're still right though we know. The truth that he has all authority. He is glorious. The earth still disputes that. Well, a day will come when he comes back and that will no longer be in dispute. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. and He is glorious. And what do we do when that day comes? Verse 28. What do we do? <laughs> this is the day we wait on. Verse 28. We straighten up. We raise our heads. Because our redemption is drawing near. So good to think about. Don't forget, beloved, my community group's been hammered this. If you've been in our church for years, I talk about this all the time. Future events were meant to inform present day obedience. Let this spur you on towards obedience, beloved. We'll get to that in just a second. When we see, when Jesus comes back, we don't need to be terrified. Many will understandably be it. We won't be terrified. We will be in awe for sure. But we know our redemption is drawing near. And this, of course, is not, Jesus is not talking about redemption from sin. Jesus has already accomplished that. Remember those words? It is finished. He accomplished our redemption at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. It's finished. He's done. His blood is shed. It has been paid for. He is now taking the merits of those bloods. That's what he's doing in the ascension. And he is now using the merits of his blood to say Nathan's mind. He's atoned for. He's not talking about our Redemption from sin. He's talking about here final redemption. Where those apart from Christ receive the justice that Jerusalem saw in miniature in 70 AD. Here Jesus brings justice to the world. Universal cry for justice in these days, and that matches the same justice Jesus says he's going to bring because again, we're created in his image. Those in Christ receive those resurrection bodies. On that resurrected earth to worship our resurrected Lord together forever. The end, the final chapter is complete. Beloved, from Genesis to the book of Luke, God has made hundreds and hundreds of promises. And he has delivered on every single one of them. Literally every single one of them. There is one promise left to fulfill. And it's this one right here. In this verse. The coming of the Son of Man, the return. That's exactly why, by the way, New Testament authors refer to these days as the last days. That's why, because they know this is the final stage. There's only one chapter left, one big promise left to be declared and fulfilled, and that's the return of Christ. And so Jesus finishes off his lesson by comparing all of these things to a fig tree. Kind of sums it up with this image. Just as you see the leaf coming in on a fig tree and you know it's summer, We might say, just as you see the the leaves falling from the trees, you know that it's fall. So will these six signs, followed by the return of the Son of Man to rule the earth, will these be a signal to tell you that the end is near? And that is the context for that much debated verse in verse 32. When he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away Until all has taken place. A lot of books shed over that verse. We got, as I understand it, three good options. You can be in any three of these and you're in a good place. You'll notice it is nowhere in our statement of beliefs that you have to mark this out. We can disagree here a little bit. But I see three ways to understand this verse. Here's the first option. Jesus when he says that this generation will not take a place uh, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, all this that he talked about the first option would say that Jesus is being very literal He's saying that he's saying he's talking here about the generation that saw the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 .AD the temple in AD. that's what he's talking about. that was literally the same generation that's option one. Not a bad option. Only one problem with that. Jesus didn't return. Right? But one might say, well, yes, Nathan, but the all there was referencing all the things to lead up to that final stage. Maybe. Maybe. Could be. It's a good position to take. That's option one. We'll call that the literal fulfillment. It's all done, save Christ's return, which is what we wait for. That's option one. Option two, when Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Option two is, is Jesus is talking about a literal future generation. In other words, a generation that will be alive when it happens at the beginning, they will be there at the end when Jesus comes back. One might argue that we are that generation. I've heard from more than one people that say, is it, I think it's really close. Might be. End is drawing near, right? Then again, I always go back to the 1910s. If I was living in the 1910s, I would have been so sure that the end was about to happen. Right? You get the Spanish flu in 1918. You get... You want to talk about wars and riots. I mean, World War One, World War Two is happening. The point is that every generation thought it was the last one. But... So, maybe, could be... But also... If this was what Jesus was talking about, namely a literal future generation, why does Jesus uh, say this generation won't pass? It would seem that if he was talking about a future literal generation, he would have said that generation will not pass away. But nevertheless, it's still a good position. Third position. This is where at least one of your pastors would land. Time and again, the Bible uses uh, words... Um, similar to the way that we do in different ways, right? I say that's cool and I might mean it's 32 degrees, but I also might say like, it's really cool. It's really nice. The Bible uses, does the same thing. The word, for instance, firstborn sometimes in the Bible, given the context that would indicate a chronological order. There's a first literal firstborn. Sometimes, though, in the Bible, firstborn, that word firstborn is used to talk about uh, the head of a uh, inheritance. They get that. They're the firstborn because they are getting this inheritance. Sometimes we see in the Bible the word no is used in two different ways, right? They, the Bible sometimes uses the word no in terms of cr- uh, uh, a cognical, cognition of something. So one and one makes two. I know that that's true. Sometimes the Bible uses the word no to describe like Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a son. In other words, intimacy. The Bible sometimes uses the word like day. Sometimes that means in the context, it means a 24-hour period. Sometimes that day references an age. Context tells us. Generation, the word generation, friends, is used in similar ways in the Bible. Sometimes it does mean a literal generation, 40 years or so. But then there are times, given the context, where the word generation is used to describe a kind of thing. So, for instance, we use the word generation our own in our own ways don't we we will say something like my granddad used to work 6 days a week he was part of that generation that worked 6 days a week and never watched tv right we talk like that and we when we say that we don't mean like just just that 40 years we're talking about a kind an age a period or there's the generation of naval warfare when boats and things were more stronger than armies it's a that was a generation that's gone by we see the same thing in scripture psalm 127 Psalm 12, 7 says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. He's not just talking about that literal one. He's talking about this kind of people, this evil kind of people. Psalm fourteen five: They are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. He's talking about a large generation of righteous people, not just literal 40 years. But I think Luke even himself uses this in Luke sixteen eight. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So there Luke is not talking about a literal 40 years. He's he's referencing a kind of people. And so therefore, in this third position, Jesus means to tell us, going back to verse 32 and even back further to verse 24. Jesus means to tell us that in this age of Gentiles, in the age of nations, sometimes people call it the church age. That all of these things, uh, this church age will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This age won't pass away until all these things have taken place. But listen, don't get too hung up on that. The bigger point Jesus wants us to teach is that there is an end. There will be hard times through to that end. But he will return. And those of us in Christ will finally have our full redemption. That's the big idea. And those apart from him, like Jerusalem, justice will be served to you. And so I close, as I close, I want to leave you with those two final admonitions from our Lord. All this stuff happening, what, like what's other than the don't, you know, be, don't uh, determine to not uh, figure out what you're going to say in advance. Don't be terrified. What's the kind of big idea? What would Jesus say amidst these days? What would he tell us to do? Verse 34 and verse 36. First thing, watch yourselves amidst this time. Watch yourselves. In other words, pay attention to your heart, to your habits. And then secondly, stay awake. Two ways of saying kind of the same idea. Watch yourselves, stay awake. Some of you that were dozing off right now, you looked at me and go, wait, wait. wait." I'm just using again, Jesus's words. Remember what Jesus says, the end will not be at once. He taught that there would be a delay. We are in that day. We are in the last age. We are in that last generation. And we are experiencing all the difficulties of the world. And as we do, there is going to be a temptation, beloved, to have your hearts weighed down by dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, Jesus says. You're going to be lulled to sleep, maybe like you are right now. By the lullabies of the world. And then Christ will return like that thief in the night. And it will be too late at that point to wake up. How many of you know that the evil one means to distract you from the end by setting your hopes in this life? How do we how many of you know that the evil means to make sin normal? Nothing to see here should be celebrated in fact. How many of you know that the world is discipling you towards its ends away from Christ? I'm going to be done in just a moment and I'm going to leave with you uh, with just a moment of silence where I want you to do this. I want you to watch yourself, stay awake and evaluate your heart. I'm going to leave you just a moment of silence. And in that moment of silence, I want you to evaluate your life, watch yourselves, By answering this question. Here it is. You ready? In this moment of silence. Answer this question. What has the recent wars. Riots. Pestilences. And possible persecutions. What has it revealed. About your submission to King Jesus. When you look back. Over the past seven months. What do you see? Coming out. As the world has squeezed us. And they will squeeze us more. Either one of two things is coming out of us. Either one, you find yourself fighting to stay in the fellowship of God's grace. You find yourself wanting to isolate, but you find your ways to get in amongst God's people, to be under God's word. Praying that you would, as Jesus says, have the strength to escape all these things that are taking place. You're doing that. Because you know you don't have the strength enough of yourself and so you're fighting to get your pl- self in places personal devotions, corporate gatherings community groups, whatever, trying to get inside of that, even though you're trying to kind of get out of it you see, you have begun to see how isolation and rampant division are weighing on your heart and you are clawing to stay inside of the confines of God's grace God's people, God's word, God's gospel and you don't always get it right, but that's what you're aiming to do You're not coasting. In other words, this seven months has revealed God's got me. You're not coasting, but instead resolving to do the things that will keep you drinking from the fountain of God's grace. When you look over that church covenant that you signed in more peaceful times, you say, yeah, I don't always get it right. But generally speaking, I'm still doing that. Or that's the first option. Or you find yourself slipping. You look back over the past seven months and you are increasingly seeing dissipation. That is disintegration. Moving away from the heart of Christ. This pandemic is being used more often to justify disobedience. Maybe you've drank too much, literally. The cares of this life, not the life to come. Weighs more on you, weighs on all of us, but the cares of this life disproportionately weigh more on you, and you find yourself sleepy. You find yourself more interested in reading the words of the world, you don't find yourself very interested to read the words of Jesus. To quote Jesus here, you're not ready to stand before the Son of Man, you're not praying. You're not gathering. You're not reading. You're not ultimately hoping in heaven. And the Romans were on the hills. If you find yourself in that previous category, listen, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. He's not letting a hair on your head perish. Give thanks to him. He's holding you. He's keeping you to the end rejoice beloved your redemption is drawing near lift your head up straighten up be thankful god has got you his grace is evident in your life be encouraged and keep going let the hope of heaven drive you through these hard days and they are hard days they will weigh us down that's the whole reason he said to be aware of the fact that your heart's going to be laid down because it's hard Be thankful. He's got you. Grace is evident. You don't got it all right. I don't have it all right. But grace is in you. Be encouraged. But if you're in that last group. Listen. Talk to somebody about it. Don't stay alone in these struggles. Talk to me. One of your pastors. Talk to the elders. Talk to a friend in the church. This week. Show up at community group. And confess it. Listen. Listen. My heart is weighed down by this world. It's not really been found in Jesus. But most of all, confess it to Jesus. He's glad for you to bring that to him. He's happy for you to bring that to him. And he will gladly forgive you. You want to know why? Because that's why he came. He came to offer his life for sinners, not for the righteous. Righteous. His heart is for those of us that are not ready to stand before him. He's glad to receive you, to take you in, to forgive you, confess it to him. He has paid the price of our redemption. The resurrection shows that it is real. And so I'm going to take just a moment here. and I want you to evaluate that question and I'm going to pray. God's words will never pass away. Evaluate your life. Watch yourself. Stay awake. Evaluate. How's it been going? Then I'm going to pray. I want you to evaluate that question. I'm going to pray. God's word will never pass away. Evaluate your life. Watch yourself. Stay awake. Evaluate. How's it been going? You are the Lord, Jesus. Forgive us for the many times in which we live as though we were the Lord. or Caesar was Lord. You're a good Lord. You're faithful. You love sinners. Thank you that you've overcome the world. Thank you that you promise you tell us about the tribulation in advance of its coming. And thank you that you promise to orient us to the world that we all want. That can never seem to find here. Oh God teach us to hope in heaven. Teach us. To know that the end is coming. but our redemption is coming with it. May we be oriented by that. And by those father that need your grace. To stand in the presence of the son of man. May they trust you. Not their own actions. Their good intentions. May they trust Jesus. And his grace. To have them stand on that day. And We pray finally that it would come soon.